everybody, Magnus here. Summer Camp I suppose my parents thought that the experience of going to a summer camp would prove beneficial to me. And so, the summer after sixth grade ended, they packed me up and shipped me off to summer camp. Needless to say, I didn't want to go. But let's be realistic, I wasn't exactly given much of a choice. I spent 13 days there during the summer of 1993, during which time I acquired a sunburn which gave me a scar that I have on my left forearm to this very day. I'd never ridden a horse before. Ever. But that summer, I rode a horse across a cattle guard. For those of you who don't know what a cattle guard is, Google is your friend. Witnesses to this little event later told me that my life flashed before their eyes. I'd never been on a date before. That summer, I went on two. Katie. Her name was Katie. Unless my brothers count, I'd never really been in a fight before. But that summer, I punched a kid in the face so hard he fell off of his bunk bed. In the plus column, though, he never talked smack about my mom again. The summer thereafter, at that same summer camp, I rode horses some more and, as far as I know, fired just about every type of gun that civilians were allowed to own back in those days. On a lark, in fact, I obtained a hunting license. It's long expired now, don't get me wrong, but my understanding is I can renew it whenever I want, even today. I compared scars with this other kid who tried to convince me that his appendix scar actually came from a knife fight, but let's face it, I didn't believe him. I told him about the lightning bolt scar on my forehead, but guys, you have to understand, that was a lot less impressive in those pre-Harry Potter days. At camp, I had water gun fights, hiked around a mountain, kissed girls, and basically had all the good, clean fun a 12-year-old is really supposed to have. My parents thought that the experience would prove beneficial to me. I'd say they were right. Hashtag Things Magnus Misses. I've studied the form of comics intimate. What you need is a hobby. Words and pictures, they could be more of an art form. What? are you talking about? I don't know. It's pretty goddamn weird. A guy dresses up like a double and he's a blind lawyer, you know? We have to do Aquaman. No one with a lick of sense would watch that show. The word fan actually is a, an abbreviated form of fanatic. And there are some people who fit that category. I believe comics are a last link to an ancient way of passing on history. You can put on a uniform for football year-round. Nobody cares. 
Basketball year-round, nobody cares. Put on a Star Trek uniform, people get a case of the giggles. Yeah, hi, somebody told me to make comic books here. That's from Superman? Smallville. You have been trying that Jedi mind shit on me since the eighth grade. It doesn't work. Oh, it works. You guys must read too many comic books or something. People do not masturbate in the DC universe. That was the biggest load of crap I've ever heard. to Trennis Magnus Punches Reality, presented by Two True Freaks. I'm your host, Magnus, and, you know, for the past couple of days, really, I've been kind of struck by, I guess, the the age in, in which we're all living right now, you know? And I guess what I mean by that is that When I, for most of my life, if you were going to have superheroes on TV, you, you'd basically have to do superheroes with a twist, you know? You couldn't just do a superhero show. No, no. There had to be a twist of some kind. For example, Lois and Clark, The New Adventures of Superman... Yeah, it was a superhero show, but honestly, it's really... I, I, I've heard people say that Lois and Clark is basically moonlighting with a superhero. And they mean that in a kind of pejorative sense. Now, I think that's kind of true. I don't, I don't mean it in a pejorative sense, but at the same time, you know, you, you can't really argue that that's not the kind of show that Lois and Clark was. I mean, at this point, I think it's... The jury's pretty much in on that, you know? For whatever else Lois and Clark, The New Adventures of Superman, was or wasn't, it really wasn't a traditional type of superhero story, put it that way. You move on down the timeline a little bit, and you get into Smallville. And now, guys, I love Smallville. I'm pretty much established among the royal elite of Smallville apologists. But let's let's be realistic. Smallville is a Superman show with a twist. And the twist is that it's it's basically the story of how Clark Kent becomes Superman. He does all of these superheroic things, but he never flies and he never and he never wears 
the uniform until the very, 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 very end of the uh, of the series, and then he does in fact become Superman, and then that's the end. So there's another superhero show with another twist, and then you get other stuff, kind of more oddball stuff like heroes, right? Where you had these characters, let's face it, they're on their way to becoming superheroes, but they don't wear costumes and they don't really operate too much in the public eye. So, superheroes, but not visibly so. Another superhero show with a twist. But, in the past, you know, during the 2015-2016 TV season... My girlfriend and I watched Arrow, we watched The Flash, we watched Supergirl, and also Jessica Jones. And not long before that, you had you had uh, Dare, the Daredevil TV show. And these are just superhero TV shows. There's no fucking bullshit twist to it. These are just superhero TV shows. Now, I'm on the record from way back saying that when you think about the kinds of stories that comic books tell, TV is the inherently superior format. I mean, feature film is fine in its place, but I guess in terms of serialized storytelling, the action has always been more suitable for TV. You know, that type of storytelling is better suited for TV. Now, obviously, telling stories in a TV show setting pretty much requires that you have a TV show budget, and there's the rub. But I don't know about the rest of you. I'm kind of willing, though, to sacrifice, I guess, budget for more comic book types of stories, you know? And that's the era that we seem to be moving toward right now and it's it's as though it's enough to simply have a superhero tv show you don't have to come up with some just fucking retarded twist to it you can just have a superhero tv show and it can be unapologetically a superhero tv show and that's okay you know and i just like i say i really appreciate that you know and I guess I just, what I'm saying is I, I appreciate the time in which we live, you know? So anyway, you know, there's really no deeper meaning to that. In fact, there's really not even much of an ending to that. So I'll just round off my introduction here by saying big juicy steak. So anyway, as to today's episode, I've been working my way through a series called the Tremendous Bendis Weekly. And I pretty much have to credit my friend and and fellow podcaster, P.Q. Ribber, for coming up with a title for this series, The Tremendous Bendis Weekly. And the shtick here is actually pretty straightforward. Basically, I enjoy comics that are written by Brian Michael Bendis. Now, the fact is, that kind of puts me a little bit in the sad minority of people who are at least talking about it online because it seems like it's fashionable. Perhaps a little too fashionable to criticize Brian Michael Bendis. And you know what? I get it. Familiarity breeds contempt. 
Brian Michael Bendis is to Marvel what Jeff Johns is to DC. You know, that just really ubiquitous writer that he writes, it seems, you know, six or seven monthly titles, and it seems like he's got his fingers in pretty much everything. And I can kind of understand that, I guess, the the ubiquity of it all can get a little bit aggravating. But then, you know, you add in the fact that Bendis has a particular style of writing that he seems to stick with. And I, I, again, I can see where that can be just a little bit jarring for people. But, you know, the simple fact of the matter is I really dig Brian Michael Bendis as a writer. And in point of fact, I, can, I think I can fairly well say I've never once finished off a Brian Michael Bendis comic and thought to myself, man, that was a real piece of shit. It's just never happened, you know? And so what I wanted to do is basically do a little mini-series about just how good I think Brian Michael Bendis as a writer really is. And so there you have it. And in fact, this mini-series, The Tremendous Bendis Weekly, this is actually something that goes way, 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 way back to the early days of Trinus Magnus Punches Reality. I always knew that I was going to have a mini-series where I could, I don't know, just talk up how good I, uh, how good a writer I think Bendis is. And so, you know, this is something that I've been promising, you know, you listeners for quite a while now. And now I'm finally getting to do it, you know. And like I say, this is something that I've been planning Literally since the day I launched this show, this miniseries was always going to happen, you know? And so far, I'm really enjoying it. And in fact, so far, the response to this has actually been very, very positive. So, anywho. So that's basically that stuff. Now, to get into today's comics, I've talked a little bit, a very little bit, about Ultimate Comics, Ultimate Marvel Comics in the past, but really not very much. I mean, I pretty much did Ultimate Spider-Man number one through five, I think, or six or seven. I don't remember. Uh, it was... It, were, it was... Actually, you know what? Fuck it. Let's just have a look. When um, This was... Let's see... This was Ultimate Spider-Man, numbers 1 through 7, episode 85. Basically, the power and responsibility storyline. And basically, I haven't really gone very close to Ultimate Marvel since that time. But for those of you who don't know, around about 2000, 2001, Marvel Comics launched an imprint called The Ultimate Universe. And the shtick of it is, they could tell stories about Marvel characters, familiar Marvel characters, but kind of do it, I guess, from the ground up. This is not, I, I'm trying to avoid using the word reboot because the mainstream Marvel universe was running continuously the entire time. This was basically, I guess, in some cases, a reimagining of certain characters, you know, more modernized origins and everything, and they basically exist in their own little universe. And the idea being that 
new readers would be attracted to Ultimate Marvel because of the fact that there's not decades upon decades upon decades of continuity with which to be familiar. Now, the snarkier fans among us said, well, you know what, that's fine right now, but how's that going to work in 10 years? Well, I guess we have our answer because in 10 years, though, well, actually a little bit more than 10 years, about 15 years later, the whole shit pretty much got nuked and folded into the mainstream Marvel Universe. And so there's your answer, Chief. But what I liked about Ultimate Marvel as a concept is it could at least attempt to stay true to the basic kernel of who these characters are. But with, to kind of tie it back to my earlier little diatribe, but with a twist, you know? The, the creators of Ultimate Marvel weren't necessarily beholden to what had happened in the mainstream 616 Marvel Universe. And so, because of that, yeah, you've got Peter Parker, he's Spider-Man, and he's all running around doing Spider-Man stuff. But his origin is slightly different from what we're used to. And I... I'm one of those people who kind of views Spider-Man's origin as being a little bit of a house of cards, and that if you take any one of those cards out, the entire shit comes tumbling down. Changing one simple aspect of Spider-Man's origin kind of has a domino effect in that it is going to eventually affect other things as well. And that may be another subject for another day, but suffice it to say that I enjoyed Ultimate Spider-Man and... I guess I don't understand some of the hostility that Ultimate Spider-Man got from some fans. Now, and I'm not second-guessing that, because God knows. I mean, I like Spider-Man. I don't consider myself to be a core Spider-Man fan, you know? And I don't know why I'm harping on Spider-Man so much, because that's fucking, that's not even what I'm talking about. So I'm just going to move right along. You also had uh, uh, Ultimate X-Men, which I think is very different from the mainstream Marvel 616 universe. I guess the catalyst for the X-Men coming together, their history, the, the team membership, the lineup, these things are all noticeably different. And I think Ultimate's very different from the, 6-6, the 616 universe Avengers. I mean, I would almost go so far as to say there are more differences between the Avengers and the Ultimates, then there are similarities. That's how different they are. So my point, though, is that it was a fun little experiment. There are a lot of fun little stories that came out of this. And ultimately, I don't really think the wheels came off the wagon as far as the Ultimate Universe is concerned until Ultimatum. And very bluntly, that's probably going to be a topic for another day. To finally start talking about the comics that we're kind of here to talk about, though, what I wanted to work my way through this time around is Ultimate Fantastic Four, number one through number six. And th this is basically the opening storyline of the Ultimate Fantastic Four monthly title. And unlike a lot of other Marvel comics that I've talked about in the past, I don't have... A whole lot of baggage with the Fantastic Four. 
another way of looking at that is that I don't know a damn thing about the Fantastic Four. And what little I do know comes from the Ultimate Universe. And so I'm coming at this from a point of view that a lot of old-time Fantastic Four fans may not be coming from, and in fact may not even totally approve of, but, you know, fuck it, that's a DC guy for you. It's just that at the time that I was coming up, and, and, and what I mean is my formative years as a comic book collector, the Fantastic Four just really wasn't a thing, you know? I mean, I'm at a real loss to think of a time in the 1990s when the Fantastic Four really mattered. And the very closest they came to mattering was was when Jim Lee temporarily jumped ship from Image Comics and took over the Fantastic Four uh, title. And basically, the, what I'm talking around here is Heroes Reborn. And what little I've ever read of Heroes Reborn kind of makes me think that Marvel was thinking of something along the lines of the Ultimate Universe years ahead of time. And in fact, you could interpret Heroes Reborn as Marvel's first real pass at creating a sort of alternate universe, you know? A sort of... a separate but similar continuity as to the mainstream universe and obviously whatever happened with heroes reborn you know whatever happened happened and those characters and those titles were eventually folded back into the mainstream universe after about a year so i don't know call it an un, uh, call it a near miss i guess but i can't help but think that the real germ of what the ultimate universe would become you can draw a pretty straight line between that and Heroes Reborn. Straighter, I think, than some people may want to admit, but who knows. Anyway, there's another little tangent for you. But my point, though, is, is in a weird kind of way, I'd almost want to compare Ultimate Marvel with the pre-crisis concept of DC's Earth 2, where... There were a lot of similarities between Earth 2 and Earth 1. There are a lot of differences, too. And I find that there was a freedom that the, that the creative teams that worked on all the Earth 2 material, there was a freedom they had in that they kind of had a safety net, you know? They could do basically whatever they wanted with Earth 2 characters. And it doesn't really matter because Earth 1 is... That was the mainstream DC universe. That's what DC really marketed. Earth 2, I mean, it's interesting and a lot of cool stories came out of that. But at the end of the day, DC's marquee titles were all Earth 1. And so you could take risks and chances with Earth 2 that just wouldn't be possible with Earth 1. And I think the same thing can be said of Ultimate Marvel, where 
stories and concepts and characters that I think Marvel might have balked at in the 616 universe. Yeah, fuck it. Yeah, you can do that for for the Ultimate Universe because end of the day, there's nowhere near as much corporate licensing and other bullshit coming out of Ultimate Marvel as there is from the mainstream Marvel Universe. So that alone makes Ultimate Marvel worth exploring, at least in my opinion. And as it, like I say, as it goes for the uh, for today for this episode, what I'm going to be talking about is. Ultimate Fantastic Four, numbers one through six. And like I say, I have no particular fandom for or expertise on the Fantastic Four. So I'm really not the guy to ask, you know, how faithful is this to the original Fantastic Four, the mainstream Fantastic Four? I'm really not the guy to ask. My sense is that this is quite different from the mainstream Fantastic Four. But, I mean, look, guys, this is the kind of thing that it it can just go on and on and on. I mean, I could have read the entire first six months or first year or two years or whatever of the mainstream Fantastic Four strictly so that I could do a comparison between that and Ultimate Fantastic Four. But what I wanted to do was basically read Ultimate Fantastic Four and let that rise or fall on its own merits rather than forcibly compare it to something that it's not necessarily aspiring to. Does that make sense? You know, I didn't really mind comparing Ultimate Spider-Man 1 through 6 to certain other Spider-Man stories, such as Amazing Fantasy number 15, but... I wanted to give the Fantastic Four a little bit more breathing room than that, precisely because of the fact that I'm not coming at at the Fantastic Four with the same degree of familiar, uh, familiarity that I'm coming to even Spider-Man with. So that's the decision that I made, and I'm going to either rise or fall with that. So whatever you think that's worth. So, But to get into, to get into the comics proper... This is Ultimate Fantastic Four, number one. Writer is Brian My- or rather, writers are Brian Michael Bendis and Mark Miller. Penciler is Adam Kubert. Inker is Danny Mickey. Colorist is Dave Stewart. Letterer is Chris Eliopoulos. I guess is how you pronounce it. Editors are Ralph Macchio, Mackenzie Cadenhead, Nick Lowe, and C.B. Sabolski. And, of course, editor-in-chief is good old Joe Quesada. So, 21 years ago, Gary Richards and his wife give birth to their first child, Reed. 11 years ago, Reed establishes himself as the smartest student at Midtown Middle School. Because of this, he's not very well liked by other students. A group of bullies torment Reed by shoving his face into a toilet in the boys' room and giving him a swirly, but... The star quarterback, which is to say Ben Grimm, scares everybody off and then walks Reed Richards home. Reed then agrees to help Ben with his trigonometry homework. Arriving home, Reed shows Ben a project that he's been working on in the garage. Using scrap and spare parts found around the house, he's attempting to construct his own teleportation device. 
Reed's bratty sister, Enid, finds the two tinkering about and threatens to tell their parents unless Reed agrees to teleport her once he gets the thing working right. He reluctantly agrees just to get Enid out of his hair. Late into the evening, Reed continues to experiment with some stuff up in his room. There's a loud sonic boom and a blinding flash of light. His mother and father race into the room to see what the hell's going on. His father, who, it needs to be said, regards Reed as a gigantic burden, berates him thoroughly and tells him that he's grounded. Six months later, a miniature version of his teleportation device at the Midtown Middle School Science Fair is on display. He successfully sends a toy car into a parallel dimension that he's come to call the End Zone. Or, at least he thinks he's teleporting it. He actually has no real idea whether his device works beyond the fact of making the car disappear. After school, a government agent named Lumpkin arrives at the Richards household. He tells everybody that he represents a scientific think tank in Manhattan that recruits young geniuses such as Reed. He offers to pay the Richards an undisclosed sum of money for the opportunity to have Reed transferred to their Baxter Building facility. Hungry for money, his parents agree. Lumpkin takes Reed to the Baxter Building and introduces him to the project's administrator, Dr. Franklin Storm. Storm introduces young Reed to his children, Susan and Johnny. He shows Reed that the project that he created with his teleportation device and explains how it all works but then adds that they've never been able to actually pierce the end zone barrier. However, using the machine as a transmitter, they were actually successful in receiving material information in the form of a small toy truck. Reed's toy truck, to be exact. Reed has but one word to describe his awe and wonder. Fantastic. To be continued. And so, what did I think? Well, I gotta tell you, I really enjoyed, at the very least, this first issue, precisely because of the fact that I'm familiar enough with the Fantastic Four to know that Reed Richards is a complete fucking genius. And so, you've gotta find ways to creatively show that. And literally, right from birth, Reed is kind of shown to be very inquisitive and curious. And I think a good example of that is actually on, of course they don't number the friggin' pages, but the first time that, uh, right after he's been born, the first time that he's placed in his mother's arms, he reaches out and grabs a handful of her hair and just stares at it, trying to figure out just what the fuck he's looking at. Because if you think about it, an infant, a newborn infant, has absolutely no idea what hair is, I would imagine. And so the very concept of it probably bamboozles the fuck right out of him. So anyway, that it's sometimes in, in, in comics, you know, character, it, it's like characterization is being established and it's just very scripty to me. Does that make sense? It feels like the narrative is being put on, on pause so that the writer can say, now here comes some character development for you. And that's really, that's really not what happens on these two pages. It's just Reed 
grabbing a, you know, baby Reed grabbing a handful of hair, trying to figure out just what the fuck he's looking at, right? And there's no dialogue to say, gee, honey, look at this. He's trying to figure out what the fuck your hair is. This boy's a genius. You kind of have to figure out for yourself that that's what Reed's thinking, you know? And I guess the lack of expository dialogue there works in favor of the writing. So I really dig that. And in fact, I, I dig the art, you know? Uh, Mackenzie, not Mackenzie, uh, Adam Kubert, I think really... I'm not, I'm, I'm not exactly the world's biggest Kubert fan, really of any of the Kuberts, but I mean, I guess of them all, Adam is probably the one that I like the most, but to say that he's my favorite of the bunch, I don't know. That It's just that, you know, we haven't set the bar very high with that. But at the same time, I just, I dig, I dig the art here. It's, it's powerful, it's expressive, and it's, generally, it's very well done. And the storytelling is clear. And one of the things that, I, that I've always kind of admired about Adam Kubert is that he's not afraid to have a shitload of panels on one page. A good example of what I mean is that scene where uh, Ben Grimm comes to Reed's rescue in the bathroom when the other guys are giving him swirlies. There are one, two, three, four, five, six, seven... Wait, I fucking lost count here. Let's see. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight panels on this page. Now, ask yourselves, when was the last time you saw a comic book page that had eight panels on it? I mean, a recent, like a relatively recent comic book, which I define, because I'm friggin' old, I define as any time in the last... 25 years, you know? How often do you see that many panels on one comic book page? But that's exactly what we see here. You know, read, I don't know, it's just this, you know, Kubert, this is something that I've noticed that kind of marks his work, not just here, but in other places. He, it's like his move is to put a bunch of panels on one page so that when he has fewer panels on a page, it's more powerful because of it, you know? So... Anyway, I really dig that. I, I, I appreciate that about Adam Kubert and his art. So, anyway, and one of the other things that this issue kind of goes to pains to emphasize is, I guess, the kind of lonely existence that Reed Richards has to endure. I mean, yeah, there's getting kicked around by bullies at school, and that, that's got to suck. But... I guess more than that, he lives in a world where I don't think he even knows how to communicate with his supposed peers, you know, the people that are his age. He probably out outpaced them back when he was six or seven years old. I mean, you know, somebody who's just this fucking brilliant, there aren't very many... trying to think of how best to put it. There are just not very many people that Reed Richards can probably level with, you know, because there, there are so few people on his level and he's not all, you know, whiny and emo about it. He just accepts the fact that, you know, in a time and a place when people have rock band posters 
on their walls. He's got Mozart posters and Einstein posters. You know, he is just so different from people his own age. And his own parents, especially his father, they just don't really relate to their son. You know, they... And, you know, I mean, to be fair to them, it's... It's not... It it can't be easy to be a parent and guardian for a genius, you know? And I mean an absolute, authentic genius. Their minds work in fundamentally different ways, and there's a sense in which the rules really don't apply to them. Does that make sense? I mean, the conventional parenting that you would probably use for your average kid isn't going to cut it with with a genius child. And for that matter, on the other end of the spectrum, it's not going to help. It's not really appropriate for a special needs child either. I mean, like if your kid's retarded, well, you you can't you can't parent a a retarded child the same way that you would a normal one. And you cannot parent a genius child the same way that you would a normal one. And that's just something that I don't think, and I'm of course I'm already forgetting his name, but I don't think that's where Reed's father's head's at. You know, he's he just seems like a very blue-collar type of guy who works hard at the factory, and then he comes home every every day, kills a six-pack of beer, and then goes to sleep, you know? Does it all again the next day, and he comes home, he just wants his shit to work, and so whenever he comes home and he finds his blender has been taken apart so that Reed could cannibalize it for some new fucking science thing that he's working on, I mean, that's... I mean, on the one hand, yes, this is what Mr. Richards signed on for. But on the other hand, that's really not what Mr. Richards signed on for. And so, yeah, I mean, don't get me wrong. The guy's kind of an asshole about it. But I can kind of see where he's coming from. I mean, this is a guy who just, God bless him, does not know what to do with Reed. He doesn't know what to do with his son. He doesn't know how to relate to his son. He doesn't understand just why the fuck Reed doesn't get it. And, again, Bendis doesn't beat you over the head with this. He doesn't go to, like, these absurd extremes. It All of the conflicts here, they're just really well realized. And there's no dumbass, retarded scene where Mr. Richards sits down with Reed and he says, You know, son, you're just so brilliant, I don't understand the way that your mind works, and I don't know what to do with you half the time. No, he doesn't say that. You see it. It's shown. It's right there on the fucking page. And I don't know. It just, it works. It works for me, you know? And what Mr. Richards doesn't understand is that the conventional rules, the conventional boundaries that you would set for a child, they are just not appropriate for Reed. He is so fucking far ahead of the curve it's it just it it plays for me that's what i'm saying it works so then you start getting into the scene and kind of on that subject you start getting into the scene where the rep from the baxter building lumpkin 
comes to the Reed's, uh, the uh, comes to Reed Richards's house, and starts talking up his parents and basically explaining what it is that he does as the director of mainland technology development. You know, and there's this moment where Reed. I keep saying Reed. I don't know why. His father, Mr. Richards. It, it, basically, what happens is Lumpkin, he's sitting there just shooting his mouth off about the way that this think tank works. And then Mr. R uh, Richards pipes in with, ah, here it comes. And how much is this, th this tank thing going to cost us? And Lumpkin, it's like he, he makes this face of just it's like the, a tiny bit of exasperation but you can see it's it's almost like he had to count to 10 first before he answers with actually we'd be paying you and like i say i mean the richards they're good parents they're good honest decent upright people they want the best for their children they just don't know what the fuck to do with reed you know uh, they don't know what the right answer is. They don't know how to, how to, how to parent a child like this. And in fact, there's even a moment when Mrs. Richard says, I knew it. I knew we raised him, uh, that we were raising him wrong. We didn't know what he was talking about half the time. And Lumpkin has to kind of, you know, break in and say, look, there's really no textbook way of handling somebody as brilliant as Reed. I mean, you know, you guys did the best you could with what you had, but there's no easy way of doing this, you know? And he even goes so far as to say that, look, public school is a waste of this kid's time. I mean, his brain works on a whole different level. He's already working on applied sciences decades ahead of adults who actually work in the field. And th when you think about it, Going to junior high, going to high school, even going to college, that's just not worth Reed's time, you know? He is so fucking far ahead of that that, like I say, the conventional rules don't apply to him. You know, yes, it's important that children go to school. Yes, it's important that they get educated. That's normative, you know, that's the ordinary way of doing things. But Reed's not ordinary, and he needs something more than what he can get from from anything less than, I would say, upper, you know, like graduate level type of higher education. You know, that's where he needs to be. And I don't know. It's just this, this works, this 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 is just very well done. And that, I think, is pretty much the end of Ultimate Fantastic Four number one. So, so to get into Ultimate Fantastic Four number two, five years ago, Dr. Molkovic, an ugly science teacher at the Baxter Building, berates his students for not living up to his, his expectations and his standards. Most of the students absolutely despise Molkovic and make fun of him behind his back. Only one student affords Molkovic any margin of respect. 
Victor Van Damme. But Victor is likewise dis- disliked by the body of his peers. He's f- frequently seen as arrogant and isolated. Reed Richards is still working on the in-zone uh, teleportation device. But as engrossed in his work as he becomes, he's easily disrupted by the presence of his classmate, which is to say Sue Storm. Reed uh, later returns to his dorm room to find Victor rifling through his notes. Reed gets all kinds of pissed off for this invasion of his privacy, but Victor insists that his mathematical computations are incorrect. Reed chases Victor away, and upon studying Victor's alteration to his notes, Reed comes to the conclusion that Victor had a point. He was actually right about everything that he said. He addresses Victor later and asks Victor if he'd like to work with him to further the project. Later, Dr. Franklin Storm has Arthur Mulkovic brought into his office. Air Force General Thaddeus Ross, a sponsor of the project, is present as well. It's been discovered that Mulkovic has been illegally conducting biotechnological experiments. His files and data are confiscated and Mulkovic is fired from the Baxter building. Which just about brings us up to the present day, finally. The final large-scale prototype of the end-zone teleporter is completed and ready for initial testing. The device is erected in the middle of the desert in Nevada. Reed's childhood friend, Ben Grimm, arrives to, vi- uh, to pay a visit. Reed has enough clout with the project now to allow uh, Ben access. Reed, Ben, Johnny, Sue, and Victor dress in blue and black utility uniforms and stand at ground zero as the end zone device is activated. Its first test is to transmit the contents of an apple through a dimensional breach. But at the last minute, Reed senses that something's gone wrong. He shouts, wait, but it's too late. The device is activated and there's a blinding flash of white light that flares across the entire desert. To be continued. So, what did I think? Well, in a weird kind of way, this is this is really more of the same in that we get a whole lot of flashback here. And in fact, I think you could fairly say that we don't actually get into modern day, uh, I guess the modern day timeline until I would guess it's you're beyond the halfway point of this issue. So if you think about it, all of issue number one and half of issue number two, that's just backstory for what's going on now in the present day. And honestly, the present day stuff is less than half of issue number two. So there's a lot of background bullshit that's got to be knocked out first. And this... You know, these things are a little bit more mechanical in nature. And you know what? In a weird kind of way, it, 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 it kind of has to be that way because I think Bendis is starting to realize that he's got a lot of story to tell and he's got to start being a little bit more efficient in terms of the way he uses his pages. I don't know. But that's, that's just the way I, the way I view it. Anyway, so as a result of all of that, there's just there's a little bit less to say uh, this time around. But you know, I, at the same rate, the I just really dig this art. I mean, 
Dr. Molkovic is just this really weird, creepy looking dude. And yeah, I mean, he's the ugliest son of a fuck that you're, you're likely to find just anywhere. I think in the, in all of the issues that I'm talking about, he is just one ugly, ugly guy. And it's just gross looking, you know I mean? He's got, I don't know what the fuck, sores or something on his face. These huge glasses, these hairy fucking moles and stuff. It looks like snot or something coming out of his nose. It's just really repulsive. And I don't know. Just the, I could see this being the kind of, look, I, I, I want to be careful how I say this because it's not like I'm, I, I'm involved in any kind of biological research or anything like that. But let's face it, I do think we've got laws against the type of genetic engineering that Dr. Molkovic was attempting to do. So it's only logical that he'd get shit canned for all of that. And when you think about it, it's not like the United States military necessarily has got... I don't think they've got the latitude to just break the law that way. So, I mean, just to kind of cover their own ass, they pretty much have to fire Dr. Molkovic, who is, of course, going to be resentful of the fact that his genius is not being appreciated. I mean, just all around, the... I guess goings on with Dr. Molkovic, they add up, you know, and this is not to speak of the fact that the guy's just kind of a creep to begin with anyway. I mean, the guy's talking to children and yeah, I realize that these children are incredibly brilliant. They, they don't really have like real peers anywhere in the world, but even on that basis, I mean, you know, you still have to be careful of how you talk to them because they are still children and my goodness. So, I don't know. All around, this is, like I say, it's a little bit more of a mechanical issue. But one of the things that happens is that you start getting a little bit of an insight into, I guess, the nature of Reed's association with Franklin's storm. That there's a little bit of a paternal, sort of a paternal bond going on there where it could you could interpret that Dr. Storm is more of a father to Reed than his actual father ever was. I mean, Reed makes a special point, you know, whenever they're firing up the teleportation device, Reed makes a special point of calling uh, Dr. Storm's attention and saying, thank you, you know? And Dr. Storm doesn't say a word in response. He just gives them this really warm fatherly type of smile. And in a weird kind of way, that says it all, you know? And as all of that's going on, Sue shoots Reed, who doesn't notice, but she shoots Reed this, this, it's, it's not even that she's giving him a look. She's just kind of stealing a glance. She gets his attention she catches his eye, and right as the, the countdown reaches one, they kiss. And, you know, let's face it, that's one hell of a, uh, of, you know, a set of, uh, that's one hell of a fireworks display that, that ensues from that kiss. So, I don't know. Put it down to a animal magnetism, I guess. But, I don't know, I just, I guess in the, in the context of, uh, 
of this just really hard science fiction type of setting that these kids live day-to-day lives in. This is probably their most romantic moment of either of their lives, and I don't know why, but I just, I just, <laughs> I, I dig that moment. I mean, what a way to get your first kiss, or at least what I assume is Reed's first kiss. I, what a way, you know? So, now, that all that stuff having been said, we start getting into, you know, starting with this issue, we start getting into the way that Adam Kubert draws comics. And as I say, his move is to kind of, it, it, it tends to be putting a bunch of panels on one page. And it's, like I say, it's the rare comic book artist that really does that all that often these days. But I think it's an incredibly effective way of telling the story. But that that sword cuts two ways in that what Kubert seems seems to prefer to do is tell the story across two pages. And I don't mean that in the sense of having a double-page splash. I mean that in terms of stretching the panels across both pages so that the top row of panels, you read that from page 5 to page 6, and then the second row of panels, you read that from page 5 to page 6. So instead of confining everything to just one page... He stretches it out across both pages. And when you're reading a physical comic book, that's really not such such a bad way of doing business. But I read these comics on my iPad, and I got to tell you, it was damned annoying flipping back from one page to the next, back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. So there is a way of doing that and doing it well. And I think he does it about as well as you can under the circumstances. But it can get a little bit aggravating at times, I guess. So, but as I say, uh, Kubert, he just does it really well. So, and whenever, and, and, you know, as as I'm saying all of this, I'm looking at the page where it's the next to last set of pages. It starts off with a close-up, an extreme close-up of the apple that they're attempting to teleport. And the entire team is, you know, looking down on it. And then the countdown starts. And then at the very bottom of the next to last page, Reed and Sue have their first kiss. And then the next page has, it's again, stretching all of the panels across both pages. But there are only four panels now. The, you see a close-up of the apple and it's really small. Actually, it's not a close-up. It's actually a wide shot of the apple, and it's pretty small in, in in the panel. And then in the next, in the second panel, it's like it gets twisted and distorted or something by the effects of the ray with which it's getting blasted. There's a a uh, in the third panel. There's a sh- a uh, reaction shot of Reed and Sue. Looks like they both just shit their pants, and. Then in the fourth panel, there's this huge blinding flash of light. And by having so many panels on the page before this, having so fewer panels on the next pages, the fact that there are fewer panels, it actually plays more powerfully now. And that, to me, is one of the strengths of 
Adam Kubert as a penciler. So, anyway. That, I think, is basically it for the second issue. So, Ultimate Fantastic Four, number three. There's a smoldering hole at the platform of the end zone initiator. Several feet away, Reed Richards lies in the dirt. His body is losing its cohesion, and his limbs have stretched beyond realistic measures. Army personnel and scientists swarm the platform, trying to understand what exactly has happened. Some of General Ross's men find Reed's disfigured form, but assume it to be some creature that teleported to Earth from the end zone. They open fire on him, but Reed's newly pliant body absorbs the impact and flings the bullets harmlessly back at them. Dr. Franklin Storm's overwrought with grief because he believes that his children, Sue and Johnny, are dead. Shortly thereafter, the base receives a telephone call confirming that Ben Grimm survived the blast as well. Ben's been teleported to Mexico City and is transformed into a huge, rock-covered monstrosity. Elsewhere, Johnny Storm awakens inside of a hospital bed in France. He has no idea what's happened uh, to him, and as he becomes more and more agitated, his body temperature rises until he literally bursts into flames. The ambient heat from his body melts all of the equipment in the room, setting off the sprinklers. The water from the sprinklers eventually douses Johnny's flame. A call's made to the Baxter building in, in New York, and Dr. Storm is relieved to discover that Johnny's still alive. As of yet, though, there's still no word on Sue or Victor Van Dam. Reed realizes that Victor changed the coordinates on the teleporter at the last minute. Reed and Victor had argued about some of the computations, but he was under the impression that they finally agreed on the specific spatial coordinates for the experiment. Apparently, Victor must have altered them at the last minute. Reed further theorizes that the strange physical manifestations that everyone seems to be developing are similar to that of the four elements of creation, earth, air, fire, and water. Meanwhile, Sue Storm awakens in an underground cavern. She's shocked to discover that her body is turned partially translucent, almost invisible. But this isn't the most surprising thing that's affecting her right now. Arthur Molkovic, her former science instructor, escorted by a colony of strange mutant drones, discovers Susan upon the cavern floor. To be continued. So, what did I think? Well, here we're starting to get into a little bit more of the paint-by-numbers aspect of a superhero origin story. And that's neither good nor bad. It's just how things are. And the again, I mean, guys, I'm coming at this from the standpoint of not knowing a single friggin' thing about the Fantastic Four. So one of the things that uh, I just have never really, I guess, been sensitive to is the exact nature of the thing as... A super, I'm not sure if superpowered is necessarily the best way to put it, but I guess basically the full range of Ben's capabilities. You know, I just didn't 
I've never really known a whole lot about the Fantastic Four as characters. And so this goes especially for Ben, who ends up getting sm- uh, smashed into by a huge pickup truck, which cartwheels over over the thing's head and then crashes on on top of itself. And so, I don't know. It's This is just... I never... I never knew he was that friggin' tough. So, all around, this is this is just useful information. You know, you're, we're starting to see a little bit of the ins and outs of how of how the of how the the character's superpowers work. And really, the best one of the best examples of that is is uh, Sue Storm and the I I guess how subtle her the I guess the depiction of her superpower is because when you think about it invisibility's got to be kind of a tricky thing to draw you know the way it's shown on this page where Sue is partially invisible it's just I mean I, I'm not a comic book artist maybe this is a piece of cake to draw I don't know but it's just I'm thinking about how I would have to rationalize drawing this and it's just it's got to be a pain in the balls to 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 draw this i mean with with reed richards you know you, you pretty much can get by with totally throwing away the usual rules of anatomy and physiology with with johnny it's basically humanoid fire with ben Grimm, it's basically a rock with legs but Sue, her powers are different. And it's got to be, I assume it's got to be harder to draw. Now, if any of you are listening to this and you know more about art and drawing than I do, and you think that this is easy, by all means, feel free to let me know. I want to hear it. Send me an email, you know, trinismagnus at, at gmail.com. But I just, I look at the way that her superpower works. And I think this has got to be a, just a, com- just a total pain in the ass to draw this, you know? So I don't know, maybe I'm wrong. And if I am, you know, I'd like to know, but coming at this from the standpoint of knowing exactly Dick about the fantastic four, I got to tell you, I didn't see the reveal at the end with, uh, Sue apparently having been kidnapped by Molkovic. I didn't exactly see that coming, you know? Now, maybe that's a part of the first Fantastic Four story, you know? Maybe they, you know, in Fantastic Four number one, they went up against Mulkovic, and I just wouldn't know that. But I truly did not see this coming, you know? This was a little bit of a punch in the balls, you know, because all of the other characters, they were found and then taken to safety, except for Sue. So, I don't know. All around, really dug this issue, really dug the art, because especially on the very last page, it's this double-page splash of Mulkovic in the cavern, and he's just surrounded by all of these creepy, animated, clay-looking humanoid figures. And it's just, it's all dark, and just the stench of this place. You can, I mean, you can just imagine, because it looks kind of like a sewer, and I can only imagine the stink in your average sewer, so... I don't know, just overall, this is some really amazing, and really detailed art, too. I mean, you can see all of the grit 
and the specs and all the other stuff in the sewer and it's just incredibly detailed and I don't know, just really dig it. Really dig it. This is this is good stuff. And that I think is basically the end of issue number three. So to get into issue number four, Johnny Storm has been brought back to the Baxter building for testing. His father, Dr. Storm, tries to get Johnny to tap into the psychological trigger that causes his body to spontaneously combust. Unconsciously, Johnny finds that his trigger, he finds his trigger, but demonstrates it by mouthing the words, flame on. Later, Reed finds the disfigured Ben Grimm sitting in the lounge. He's been outfitted with an impact suit so that his increased mass doesn't cause damage to whatever surface that he's standing or sitting upon. Ben asks him if, if Reed is responsible for his current condition, and Reed says yes. Flying into a rage, Ben attacks him. Reed uses his newfound stretching abilities to wrap himself around Ben and calms him down while promising that he's going to find a way to make him, Ben, get back to normal. Meanwhile, a mile and a, uh, about a mile and a half below the earth, Dr. Arthur Molkovic has found Susan Storm. He had, he, he's got his, his cloned Anamin take her from the Nevada desert and bring her to an enormous underground valley. Molkovic has been living here for years. He believes that the theory of a hollow earth is completely true and that there are substantial links between it and the theory of lost Atlantis. Using the alien technology left behind from an unknown species, Molkovic has power over the Baxter Building mainframe computer, a huge tower of databanks and video monitors that lie within the cavern. Molkovic even goes on to explain how he used blood scraped from an ancient weapon to form the DNA template uh, for his biotechnological uh, experiments. This is how, he, uh, how he's created his army of animate. But more than anything, Arthur is in love with Susan Storm. Later, and elsewhere, Johnny is finally brought out of quarantine where he's introduced to Ben Grimm. Astonished by appearance, he refers, he refers to him as some sort of thing. Everyone else is still at a loss as to what could have happened to Sue and Victor Van Dam. But before the conversation can progress, there's a tremendous rumble from outside. Racing to the window, they find that a gigantic reptilian monster has broken through the streets of Manhattan from underground and is ready to wreak destruction on everything it finds. To be continued. So, what did I think? Well, this is a little bit more of an expository issue as once you give your characters superpowers, you pretty much have to show them developing control over their superpowers and for kids as brilliant as as these guys it stands to reason that they're going to be able to figure out their powers pretty quickly and on the one hand you know there is there is i guess a a sort of a joy at having superpowers, and Johnny Storm definitely exemplifies that. But there's also, there's, I guess, a counterpoint to it that we see going on with The Thing, 
where he's not exactly happy about being a sort of rock-covered monster. And this, to him, is basically the worst thing that could have that could have possibly happened. He's not happy about the fact that, yeah, he's a lot stronger than he ever was before, but man, at what a price. And as that's happening, one of the things that you realize is that, you know what, this guy has got a lot of self-control. You know, because if you think about it, you know, this is a guy that was training to become a, a, a pro football player. And that doesn't seem very likely at the moment. And I don't know. I mean, you, you'd think that most people, you know, when confronted with the fact that, you know, their, their, their biggest dream, their biggest hope in life is probably not going to happen. They might have snapped a little bit sooner than the thing did. So, you know, kudos to to him for, I guess, keeping it together as well as he did and for as long as he did. You know, that's some interesting characterization there when you think about it. Anyway, moving on to Sue Storm, we see her, I guess, mastering the finer points of of her invisibility we see basically an outline of various internal bodily organs. Then in the next panel, there's an outline of various bodily organs uh, surrounded by a skeleton. Then in the next panel, that skeleton is now covered in muscle. Then in the next panel, we see plain old Sue Storm. And again, I'm not an artist. I don't know really all that much about art. But I would think that just from an artistic standpoint, this has got to be a serious pain in the nuts to draw. And the thing about it is, Adam Kuber just does a bang-up job whenever he does anything related to Sue Storm's invisibility. I mean, this is, guys, this is a master at work. And I'm not usually one to gush a whole lot about art, because when you come right down to it, I'm really more of a writing guy. You know, I mean, I want the art to really look good. But I guess apart from that, I'm really not all that picky about it. But, you know, every now and then, you know, you, you'll see art that it's just criminal to not comment on it. And in this case, I mean, Adam Kubert did a first-rate fucking bang-up job with the art. And, you know, the thing is... I know that Adam Kubert is a little bit of a marquee name, but I've never really regarded Adam Kubert at the same time. I've never really regarded Adam Kubert as being a, like a huge rock star type of artist. You know, I mean, people, they may lose their minds over, you know, Jim Lee drawing something or, or whoever, but you just, I don't know. I don't hear quite as much about, you know, Adam Kubert, at least not now as compared to, you know, 20 years ago when Adam Kubert drawing your, or any of the Kuberts really drawing your, your comic pretty much meant you're going to sell a minimum of almost a million copies. You know, you're not selling less than 800 some odd thousand, uh, copies. And I don't know, but it's like his star is somewhat faded. His talent if anything, I think is only, it's only really improved 
but I don't know. It's like people just don't seem to talk up Adam Kubert as much as they do, say, John Romita Jr., you know? So it's just, it's weird. That's all I'm saying. And, you know, this is just, on the one hand, there's a little bit of flash to this art. I'm not going to, I'm not going to uh, deny it, but you can't deny that there's a lot of workman or craftsmanship, really, that goes into this art. And there's this moment, it's actually, God, this is just so well done. Again, you've got Qbert. he's stretching the, the panels across two pages here. And I don't have a page number, but basically it's Dr. Molkovic leading Sue Storm through the underground cavern surrounded by Anamin. And so panels, one, two, three, four, five, stretch across these pages. And I can't tell you what the page number is because fucking they don't number the pages, but... Panels one, uh, panels one through five stretch across these two pages. The fifth panel is the semi-close-up of Molkovic, and he says, it would seem so. And isn't that just fantastic? And blah, blah, blah. And he carries on from there. And then, the, I guess the sort of main panel on the page is, like I say, it's Sue, Molkovic, and all of the Anamen walking through the underground tunnel. And there's a dialogue balloon I guess you could call this panel six. There's a dialogue balloon right over Molkovic's head, and it connects to the dialogue balloon uh, coming near uh, Molkovic's mouth in panel five. And as it does all of that, it basically shows you what order you need to read these panels. And the reason I'm being kind of, it, it it's, look, it, it it's, it's tough to describe, but the reason I'm being kind of a pain in the neck about it is that, guys, this is the work of a master, you know? You've got to be so good in order to to construct your page in this way. I mean, this is not done, you know, haphazard. There's a method to it. And the one of the hard things about, about arranging your panels in this way is trying... Is, at least some readers might struggle with trying to figure out which panel should be read first. And honestly, I tend not to even question that when Adam Kubert is drawing because the, the storytelling and the panel arrangements, you know, they're all, they may or may not be uh, innovative and unique to his style, but the storytelling is always, or almost always crystal clear. You know, anybody could sit down and figure out the order in which these panels need to be read. And guys, comics have a have a storytelling language that's all their own. And it's a master who can at once innovate with that, but also keep the storytelling clear, logical, and concise. And guys, this is all, I guess this is a long way of saying, don't fuck with Adam Kubert, because he will end you. You know, this is just amazing, amazing work. I love it. So, very powerful. And also really creepy, too, because there's this moment where Molkovic says, I love you. And he's talking. I mean, this is a guy who's got to be in his, somewhere in his, his upper 30s at the very least. And he's telling, like, this 15-year-old girl that he loves her. And that's just fucking creepy. And... So when I say that it's good, I mean the art and the writing are both 
appropriately creepy. I mean, trust me, this is not normalized at all. It's creepy and it's shown as being creepy. So I just, I dig it. It's really well done. So, and then I guess to get into, you know, the, the, the end of the issue, you know, you have this weird, creepy looking monster thing crashing out of the street in New York and tearing shop on, on everything. And you've got, you've got, uh, the thing, the human torch, Mr. Fantastic and Dr. Storm looking down at this thing. And they pretty much have just shit their pants because they have no idea what the fuck to do with this. And it's just, yeah, this is just so cool. And then the very end of the issue, it's this double page splash of the monster springing up out of, uh, out of the street. And he's, uh, he's tearing up the street and cars and pedestrians and debris. They're just flying all over the place and pedestrians are standing around staring at this thing and they're shit in their pants too. Cause they have no idea what they're looking at. And this is just, this is just cool. I like it. It's very monster comic to me, you know? And, uh, I don't know. I just, I dig it. And that I think pretty much leads us into ultimate fantastic four number five. And I guess this is more of an action issue type of type of issue where at the base of the Baxter building, a massive beast has emerged from the depths of the earth as Reed Richards, Ben Grimm, Johnny Storm, and his father, Professor Storm, all watch in amazement. During the commotion, Johnny accidentally melts the window and falls through. Instinctively, he commands Flame On, and he discovers that he can fly in his flaming form. Not to be outdone, Ben Grimm plunges from the window right after Johnny and slams into the street below. The creature quickly snatches Grimm and tries to consume him, but Ben wedges himself be uh, between the, the jaws of the monster. Reed Richards uses his extendable body uh, to wrap the creature's uh, to wrap around the creature's jaws, thereby allowing Ben to escape. The creature swats Ben into the upper floor of a nearby building when Ben emerges and decides to take matters into his own hands, and then begins to pummel the gigantic uh, creature, driving it back into the crater from which it came. SWAT teams and the army have arrived on the scene as the trio of heroes stand at the mouth of the pit. They're not exactly sure just what that creature was, and at one point, Johnny suspects it might be his missing sister, Sue. Ben Grimm doesn't care, he just wants to finish the job, so they decide to start down after the creature. As they descend, Johnny's glowing body reveals unidentified wall markings. When they, when they reach the apparent floor of the pit, Johnny burns a bit brighter in order to get a, a better look around, only to reveal that they are surrounded by Animen. To be continued. So, what did I think? Well, like I say, this is a little bit more of an action movie type of, type of issue, and so on that basis, there's really not as much to comment on I guess as far as, you know, analysis is concerned, this is more of just a fun issue where we're finally starting to get some superhero action type of sequences. But 
that having been said, you know, we do get an insight into, or at least a better insight into how, you know, how the, the Fantastic Four's uh, powers work. And a good example of that's actually Reed. Uh, he basically forms himself into a ball and uh, dives out the window. And yeah, he bounces, but it inflicts pain on him. You know, he bounces like a beach ball, but dude, that hurts. And I think it's generally known that the Human Torch can fly in his flame mode, but it's known to the reader. The characters discover that on their own, and I don't know, That's it's just a neat little moment. And again, you know, the fact that I'm coming at this from the, you know, from the standpoint of knowing exactly jack shit about uh, the Fantastic Four. It's it's fun to see them discover, I guess, the way that their powers work. So, I don't know. This is just this is just kind of neat, and also, you know, just how fucking tough the thing is. Uh, he's tough enough that he can fight this monster, and not only hold his own actually kick the monster's ass, which I think is, that's, that's pretty nice. And he's also tough enough that, uh, when the police open fire on him, the bullets really don't hurt him. So anyway, like I say, you get a pretty good insight into all of their, all of their powers. And then from there, uh, you get this sort of cliffhanger ending where the team, they find themselves surrounded by Anamin. And again, this is just, it's very powerful, very moody, very atmospheric art where they're deep underground and they're surrounded by more monsters and they don't know what the fuck to do. And so, I mean, yeah, they just survived a, a fight with, uh, with that nameless monster that wrecked shop on that New York City street. But that doesn't exactly mean that they have any assurance of surviving an attack by these monsters if they should decide to attack. So, I don't know. Like I say, there's just less to say about this issue than there are the others, but overall, lots of fun and more badass art. And we're getting into a little bit more now of... I shouldn't say that this is Adam Kubert's forte, but he does do action extremely well. As good as anybody, and I dare say, better than most. And so, as to Ultimate Fantastic Four Part uh, or sorry, number six. Uh, deep in a mole man's subterranean domain, Reed Richards, Ben Grimm, and Johnny Storm find themselves surrounded by Animen. Mole man is also present along with Sue Storm, who's been missing since the accident. Johnny flares up, blinding Mole man in the process, well, and also Mole man's horde, while Sue runs uh, to her three friends. Mole Man begins to welcome his former students to his world, but Sue quickly explains that, look, this guy's a fucking madman. He's jacked into the Baxter Building main, uh, mainframe, and he's been watching everybody. Sue goes on to explain that she's been kidnapped, and he's been obsessed. Dr. Molkovic has been obsessed with Reed and her father, Professor Storm. Reed suspects that Dr. Molkovic may have actually sabotaged the experiment. Molkovic gets ten different kinds of pissed off by Sue's betrayal, and he orders the Animen uh, to dispose of all four of them. Thousands upon thousands of Animen close in on the team, 
as Reed tries to reason with Mole Man to no avail. The pounding of Ben Grimm's massive frame begins a subterranean earthquake. The floor opens up and Molkovic falls into the crevice. Reed tries to grab him but comes up short as Mole Man plummets downward. With everything crashing down around their ears, Sue forms an invisible bubble around everybody and then lifts him back to the surface and to safety. Back at the Baxter building, Sue and the others are reunited with her father, Professor Storm. Reed's still confused as to why this accident that transformed them ever even happened and concludes that the only way to find out is to find Victor Van Dam, the final member of the team, in order to find the answers that he seeks. The end. For now. So, again, this is a little bit more of an action movie type of issue where there's lots of fights and escapes and, you know, shit blowing up, things falling apart and crashing and all of that kind of stuff. And there's, because of that, just overall less to comment on. But the deep and abiding sensation that I had after finishing this issue is that I need to read more Ultimate Fantastic Four. And so... I'm not going to talk about those issues in, 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 this, in this episode, but rest assured, that's what I did. And having read more issues of Ultimate Fantastic Four, I've now got the deep and abiding sense that I need to read regular Fantastic Four. And, I don't know, just give that a test drive. And I really look forward to doing that. Now, I'm going to come back to Ultimate Fantastic Four, at least at some point, but I... I don't know when, but my sense, at least of the issues that I've read, is that, look, the purpose of this miniseries is to kind of pay tribute to Brian Michael Bendis as a writer, since in my view, he just doesn't get the credit that he deserves, but he's credited as the as uh, the uh, co-writer at least of the first issue. And that kind of raises the question of just how much credit for all of this rightfully belongs to uh, Mark Miller. And the fact of the matter is I, I really don't have a, uh, a, a clear answer to that because Mark Miller is credited as uh, the, uh, the co-writer of Ultimate... Uh, Fantastic Four uh, number number one uh, through number four after which starting in issues five and six Bendis gets sole credit and so I've generally associated Brian Michael Bendis as being the more talky character driven type of writer he does I guess small and intimate stories more so than you know big loud in your face action movie types of stories and yet the issues that that Mark Miller is credited as co-writer kind of belie all of that in as much as I've like I say I think of Bendis as the more talky character driven writer and Miller as the more action plot type of writer but numbers uh, issues number one through four those are the more talky issues and those are the ones that have Mark Miller as the as the, you know, credited as the uh, co-writer, whereas issues five and six are the more action movie type, and Brian Michael Bendis has sole writer credit, so I don't know. But 
all of this is, is kind of a long way of saying I'm not sure how much of the Ultimate Fantastic Four concept is Bendis's totally, and how much might have been contributed by Mark Miller. And frankly, I don't care. You know, I've always thought of this as being a little bit more of a Bendis comic than a Miller comic anyway. So, I don't know. Um, as I say, though, I'm going to talk about more Ultimate Fantastic Four in the future. I just don't know when that's going to be. But hopefully by now, and hope well, maybe less so now, but hopefully in the future, you guys are going to believe me when I say that I'm coming back to uh, these... You know, when I say that I'm going to come back to something, I am, in fact, going to come back to it. And, um, and in fact, that sort of leads into an upcoming series that I've got so, uh, coming soon, but I'm going to keep the details of that to myself, at least for the time being. But anyway, all around, these are just really fun, really enjoyable comics. I had a ball reading them, and I can't wait to talk about more in the future. Now, as to next week, I'm going to be talking about Ultimate Spider-Man, issues number 8 through 13. And the idea is that that's actually going to be the sort of the, the wind-up of my uh, Tremendous Bendis Weekly Appreciation Series. And so uh, come back for that. But uh, at least for right now, I think that's pretty much everything. So um, because of the fact that this episode has already gone long as it is, I'm not, I, I really don't have any time to get into feedback or anything this week. And you know what? Come to that. I am so fucking far behind on feedback that I'm gonna have to figure something out there so that I can start getting caught up on, on feedback. I'm not... I don't really have any ideas on that yet, but I'll I'll figure something out. But I I anyway, so, like I say though, for right now, I think that's pretty much it. Next week is gonna be Ultimate Spider-Man. Again, issues number 8 through 13, so come back for that, but I think that's pretty much it for me this week. Bye, everybody. I'll see you next week. in need of some relaxation? Is the pressure getting to him? Well then, we've got great news for you. Here at Magnus Doggy Brothel, we have over 1,000 bitches in heat to help your dog relax. For just $300, your little guy can get the happy ending you only wish that you could get. We have all different kinds of breeds to satisfy your furry roommate. Labradors for those who need some all-American love. Shizu for those who prefer something a bit more exotic. Why, we even have Doberman Pinchers if anybody likes it rough. And this weekend, we're offering a discounted special. Two bitches at the same time. And this won't cost you a million dollars either. Get two for the price of one for your studly pet. So, bring your furry buddy to Magnus Doggy Brothel. Our facilities are licensed for the finest and doggy pleasure that you'll ever find. Why, just check out all the rave reviews we've gotten on Yelp. Magnus Doggy Brothel. Because a bang is always better than a whimper, right? Right? <laughs>
right? Interretro and Res, Patent Pending. Magnus Doggy Brothel is a subsidiary of Demonzo Happy Ending Ventures. Not responsible for loss or injury. Subject to terms and conditions. Void where prohibited. If you like strange pop culture, if you like obscure stuff that you wish you'd have heard of years ago and you don't know what it is, if you like just that kind of stuff, old radio, um, obscure, unmarketable pop culture, uh, strange chiptune music, um, all sorts of things like that can be found on the Quake Reversal Satellite on Overnightscape Underground at O-N-S-U-G dot com. It's an amazing show at an amazing place full of uh, strange and unmarketable internet transmissions. Hours and hours and days and just O-N-S-U-G dot com. Take a look around and I bet you you'll find something. You like cheap comic books, right? Well, I'm Professor Allen, and I talk about cheap comic books on the Quarterbin Podcast. In every episode, I'll dissect a single comic from my collection, as long as I paid no more than 25 cents for the issue. Forget about $4 new comics that you can read in four minutes, or crossover events that can cost 100 bucks to collect. Join me in the Quarterbin, where even bad comics are a bargain, and good ones are a steal. The Quarterbin Podcast is part of the Relatively Geeky Podcast Network. Visit us at relativelygeekypodcast.blogspot.com or search Relatively Geeky or Quarterbin Podcast on iTunes. I guarantee it'll be worth every penny. Okay, so I think that's just about the end of that. Trennis Magnus Punches Reality is a proud member of the Two True Freaks podcast network. You can find the home for Trennis Magnus Punches Reality on Facebook just by searching for Trentus Magnus Punches Reality. There you can interact with your fellow listeners and also see notifications of new episodes when I put them up. You can friend me on Facebook just by searching for Trentus Magnus, which is spelled T-R-E-N-T-U-S-M-A-G-N-U-S. You can email me and my parole officer at TrentusMagnus at gmail.com. Do you have a suggestion for a topic? Feel free to email me, and I might consider thinking about the possibility of potentially discussing whatever you have in mind someday. And that's a promise. Do you have a podcast of your own? If so, why not record a promo for me to play on my show? It's quick, easy, and can help you spread the word about your show. I'm always looking for more promos to play. Keep it fairly short, and yours could be next. My promos can be found at this show's homepage for those interested. Just look for the promos section. 
visit our website at twotruefreaks.com. Two True Freaks is always spelled T-W-O-T-R-U-E-F-R-E-A-K-S. If you shop at Amazon.com, please consider using the link at twotruefreaks.com to shop there. If you use this link to go to Amazon and then you shop, Two True Freaks gets a little cut of what you buy and it doesn't cost you anything extra. So you get to shop as usual and help out the Two True Freaks at the same time. Two True Freaks and all of its excellent affiliates are available on iTunes, and you can choose to subscribe to either the entire network if you wish, or pick whichever individual shows you want to follow. We have so many shows to choose from, there's just bound to be one that appeals to your particular fandom. Just search Two True Freaks with an exclamation mark at the end, space, and the number two. If you ever leave your house and you actually have friends, why don't you tell them about Two True Freaks? If you've enjoyed our show, please, won't you take a moment to rate us on iTunes? That helps others find the show, too. The contents of this podcast are fictitious, hypothetical, and probably completely unnecessary. Any similarity to living persons or real-life events is purely coincidental and void where prohibited by law some assembly required batteries not included. The white zone is for passenger loading and unloading only. All models are over the age of 18. Trennis Magnus Punches Reality is a Magnus Media Enterprises Limited production in association with Demanzacor of Milan, Italy.